Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm David Theo Goldberg, the director of the University of California Humanities Research Institute. And this is UCHRI's forum on the, the question of civil war. We are looking forward to a powerful discussion among our formidable interlocutors today on this pressing uh, notion of civil war. I want to thank all our staff for making this possible uh, to the ASL interpreters, Bob Loparo uh, and Arlene Narvaez, who you will see interchangeably from time to time, um, helping us reach out to a larger audience. And I especially want to thank our interlocutors, Adam Gatashu, Ushil Mbembe, Elizabeth Libby Anker, uh, and Brad Evans for so readily agreeing to engage with each other and to engage with us in this conversation. We intend indeed a conversation. So after the brief intros, I will start with some questions to get our, discuss our discussants exercised and we will shape a discussion in real time. About 25 minutes or so will be left for the audience to ask questions at the end. We've turned off chat uh, to avoid the kind of virtual civil war Zoom bombing. Um, so, uh, Please use the Q&A function at the bottom of Zoom uh, to be able to pose questions and we'll try and get to as many of them as possible. Um, so let me begin with the, uh, uh, just by saying we, we are super fortunate to have four fabulous critical political theorists uh, with us in conversation today. And I'm gonna introduce each much too briefly, you can go online to find out uh, much more about them. Uh, Adam Gatashu is Noba Family Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. She's the author of uh, World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination on the Anti-Colonial Archive and its Lessons for Us Today, a really uh, incredible read. And a marvelous recent long read article in The Nation uh, on the work, and I mean pretty much all the work of Orlando Patterson. Uh, Elizabeth Libby Anker holds professorial positions in American studies and, and um, political science at George Washington University in the heart of the city where much of the political action has been this past week. Um, and the author of Orgies of Feeling, Melodrama and the Politics of Freedom. She's involved in the editing of more journals than I can uh, even name, including the likes of Theory and Event, um, and sort of keeps us going and obviously has read everything um, um, because everything comes to those journals, right? Brad Evans holds a chair in political violence and aesthetics at the University of Bath, uh, the United Kingdom. His extensive writing on violence includes most recently the Atrocity Exhibition, Life in an Age of Total Violence, and the forthcoming uh, book next year, Eke Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity, uh, the, that combination of, um, of the political and the aesthetic. You should check out his website, Histories of, of Violence too. I want to say he's played football in the soccer sense for every major league team in America and runs a serious radio show, but I suspect those are his doppelgangers trying to ride his coattails. Ashil, Mbembe 
uh, is a research professor at WISER, the Wits Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of Witwatersrand and holder of many more positions um, I'm, I'm not going to name here. Each day I open social media, another of Ashur's published work has appeared. There's a collection on necropolitics in French, politique uh, de l'inimité and brutalisme. And now uh, freshly, I think freshly out of Shill, out of the dark night from Colombia, including reflection and, and his work also recently includes reflections on the right to read and breathlessness so of our time. So that's our uh, fabulous panel. Um, and I wanna get going just by sort of you know, uh, painting a little um, <clears throat> canvas uh, about the backdrop. Uh, theoretically. A report yesterday indicated that 40% of those in the United States polled about the current political climate feared civil war no matter the outcome of the coming election in a week. We could ask what they are imagining when they worry about a civil war breaking out. Something like the 1860s, like the Michigan militia this summer storming the legislature, or the streets of Portland? Or is this a more abstract general worry about open carry and trigger happiness confronted by Trumpian characterizations of Antifa? Elsewhere, more conventional understandings of civil war have raged for years, festered and fermented within and beyond borders, proxied clashes of larger geopolitical investments and positionings, mediated projections and political economies of lack and refusal. So I wanna ask, begin by asking um, across this landscape, in what ways might it prove um, analytically generative, if at all, to think through the lens of civil warring um, in a different vector and register than the conventional one, uh, given the backdrop of the political today, both today and historically. Can or does civil war serve as an analytic for contemporary social conditions? If so, uh, how and to what purpose? And I think I'll start by um, getting each of the speakers um, in something like an order uh, to, to take a turn, a stab each at, at um, that question and begin with Adam and then go to Brad and then Levy and then Ashil. So Adam, the floor is literally yours. All right. Well, thanks, uh, David. And uh, thanks, everybody who's joining us. Um, I think for many of us who live in the United States, but come from parts of the world where civil war, political and social disorder have been the, have been the dominant or characterizing features of our politics, it's very disorienting to, to be in a moment where the language of civil war has surfaced or resurfaced in the United States context itself. And I think this is an opportunity perhaps uh, to think about more broadly what the lessons of uh, post-colonial politics, post-colonial democracy are for the wider world and for the North Atlantic context as well. So to think really globally and trans um, comparatively about the question of politics and the question of the place of civil war in politics. Um, um, so in, in June, when the uprisings um, began, I was in the middle of a reading group and <clears throat> we decided to spend some time 
with two texts on civil war in the the civil war and the aftermath in the U.S. One is uh, Stephanie McCurry's book *Confederate Reckoning*, um, and the other is Du Bois's classic *Black Reconstruction*. And I think what what was particularly useful about those books is that they don't actually focus on the confrontations, the battlefields of the Civil War, but they try to make us think about what are the political processes that led up to the Civil War. And then of course, Du Bois most importantly about the kind of the fallout of, of, of the war. Um, so I just wanted to maybe to highlight some things about those books that I think might be productive for our moment. And I think it's particularly what they draw our attention to is the ways in which democratic processes of especially around electoral politics, end up uh, exacerbating, uh, calcifying, entrenching political identities and political conflicts. Um, so uh, McCurry's book, for instance, focuses largely on within the, she focuses primarily within the Confederate States. And one of the things that's really striking about that book is she makes the case that the Confederacy is a really a minoritarian project. Very few Southerners were actually slaveholders. So what's the process by which they, they generate consensus around the question of, of, of secession? Um, and she in particular talks about the ways in which processes of popular mobilization and forms of coercion went hand in hand in producing uh, referendum after a referendum, uh, uh, votes for secession. So I think one thing that's really interesting about that is just how the the kind of construct we might think about the internal construction of the of the groups that end up constituting the two sides of the Civil War. Uh, and her point is really that within the Confederacy, there's all these figures who were not obviously part of the Confederate project, but end up being uh, called into it. And what are the mechanisms by which that happens? How does one come to identify on one side of a political battle seems really important. Um, then to just briefly mention a point from Du Bois that's similarly connected to this question of popular pol po political mobilization and electoral politics is, I think you know he that book is obviously telling the story about what he calls the practical reestablishment of, of slavery after the Civil War. But I think what's really striking is how much attention he pays to the contingency of that political process. So almost two thirds of that, or one third of the book, is dedicated to a very very close fine grained analysis of the various coalitions at the state level that generate the kinds of um, uh, outcomes we see, which is the defeat of Reconstruction governments. And there too, I think in his attention to projects and processes of coalition making, um, he shows us how race itself, and I think we'll get to this, gets gradually um, calcified as the basis of a political identity. And it does so in the moment and through the moment of electoral politics. Uh, so I think one question we might just ask, again, thinking with these books and thinking about our own moment, is the what what about elections, uh, the kind of constructions of majorities, the processes of deciding who gets to vote, who 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 counts on the electoral rolls, et cetera, how those processes generate these forms of um, escalation, confrontation, et cetera, that look like civil war. So I'll stop there and come back.
Thanks very much, Adam. Uh, Brad, do you want to yeah, uh, take off? Yes, thanks a lot. Um, so I think the, um, the there's a number of issues, I think, which really um, raise some important questions for me. I think, first of all, when we're thinking about um, the idea of civil war, there's it's a concept you, you, you asked David about, you know, how we should approach the concept analytically. I first of all, I would say with a great deal of hesitation, I think civil war as a concept needs to be dealt with with a great deal of hesitation because of the consequences of it. And I think in terms of thinking then about, you know, the types of questions, what the analytical concept of civil war would raise, first of all, of course, is, okay, well, where is the battle? Who is the battle between? But perhaps more, you know, um, difficult to answer is when is a civil war? And I think the this question of the temporalities of civil wars to me seems particularly striking. Now, I know we could kind of develop the ideas of Michel Foucault and kind of say, well, okay, civil war is almost like a constant state, which he, you know, he, he refers to this as the silent order of battle that's constantly bubbling within any given society. And a point that was picked up by Agamben in his idea of stasis then, that civil war actually is all about the maintenance of a status quo. In other words, it's a violence in the name of civility for the preservation of a certain order. And th therefore, civil war can be called upon constantly for the maintenance of order, and it's felt by different constituencies in different ways. And there's actually a brilliant quote for those people who haven't read um, David Theo Goldberg's piece on this, a quote which I think really captures this, is um, the slow violence of barely perceptible conflict, civil wars are social saturations, warring without war, conflictual engagements without full realization. Now, I think the, the, the issue which really, um, I think, troubles me at the moment in particular is, is that very thin line, perhaps, or the tipping point between when does a slippage occur between a silent battle to actual open warfare. And I think, you know, that there is something which we can see happen as a momentum between we know wars just don't simply happen, they don't fall from the sky. So there is a, a continued process. But how do we understand the long process of this silent battle, which can very easily, as shown in places like Sarajevo and elsewhere, open, you know, just explode into open warfare very quickly and be politicized in very devastating ways. I think the other thing which the concept of civil war really forces me to think about is both the spatiality and the temporality to civil war. And for instance, to give two basic examples, two people in exactly the same location can have an entirely different affective relationship to that, that location. So what for one person might feel like a space of peace could be for another person a condition of war. So I think that kind of very subjective spatiality of two people in one place. But I'm also getting to think about in the age of digitalization, and again, something which um, David has written about uh, wonderfully on this, is what does it mean perhaps to think of civil war of one person in two different locations as well? The, the multiple locations through which civil war now occurs between the actual and the virtual. So I think those are the things which I think would really um, I guess really interest me in terms of how do we um, obviously mobilize against that. Um, Adam just obviously talked about the question of race and I I do want to make I pass one just further conceptual point before passing over. Um, and this is an, again another point which um, was made in the article which David wrote about race war as a continuation or revealing many of the hallmarks of religious war. And I actually think 
if we want to put this in historical context, seeing race war as a chapter in the history of sacred violence and the, the ability to sacrifice life for some idea of the greater good allows us to have a much greater understanding perhaps of the history of violence and this continuous motif that humans have to sacrifice life for some idea of greater good, none more so of course than make you know, make America great again or so forth. Um, just one final point, which I'd like to just open up um, as maybe as a provocation. We often perhaps think of civil war as two, and by that I mean two competing entities. But I wonder whether we might see civil war as three, where often there are two sides in a battle played off against one another in a kind of a dialectic, an identity-based dialectic. But behind this, there is the real power which is manipulating always both disposable sides in a conflict, politicizing both sides, and yet they will become the winners regardless. And I think maybe seeing war, civil war as three rather than two, but the question of course is who is the third? And I think that would be the question we can perhaps open up on discussion as well. So I guess those are my opening thoughts on that. So. Thanks, Brad. Um, Levi, do you wanna win? <clears throat> Great, thank you. Um, and thanks to everybody who's here. It seems to me what, what's specific about civil war is also when a pol con when political opposition, which is right, the kind of what makes the conflict of politics, but when political opposition becomes the turning of opposition into an existential enemy. And I think in order for that to happen, Right. There has to be ways in which all of the other institutions of politics, protests, forms of direct action are not working to solve fundamental issues about, you know, as David has written about fundamentally incompatible visions of life, to which I would also add fundamentally incompatible visions of power in terms of who gets access to it, who belongs, how, what does it look like to share power as a collective, which is what politics is. And I also think in addition to that, what distinguishes war from civil war is that there has to be some kind of recognition in the past that the groups that are now disintegrating were initially together members of a polity. So there's a sense of a fellowship or brotherhood in an old fashioned sense that is being torn asunder. And so I think that sense of, of something that was a collective being undone is really helpful for me at least to think about. So we can think about the civil war in the US in this way where the civil war in the US was between white people in the South and white people in the North. And perhaps part of what was happening in terms of the, the racialized sense of where do black Americans and the project of abolition fit in was more the war itself in the sense of making a claim for what a state entails and who gets to be a part of it. And then maybe reconstruction, and as, as Adam was already mentioning, the kind of absolute destruction of reconstruction and the rise of white supremacy might have been the, 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 the civil war that was actually more of a kind of largely racially inclusive project, even in, in its violence. So in this sense, to think about civil war in, in those ways, it, you know, I, as somebody in American studies and thinking about our moment, I think civil war is actually a quite helpful optic to try to understand what's happening in our present moment. Because I do think we are seeing two quite different versions of understandings of how power is and, and how it operates and who gets to be part of the collective that are circulating in US life right now. 
And even though we often have really conflicting and different visions, it does seem to me that we're settling into a kind of oppositional stance. One that I think is, is quite fascist, if we use that term in order to think about a politics that is about the pleasures of using state power to dominate over other members of a polity, or to think about um, ways of valuing power where it is homogenous, where it is about purity, where it is about security and a closing of a world and a border, versus what I also see at this moment, which I actually was something I would not have predicted four or five years ago, but I actually think is both hopeful and is leading somewhat in these in this kind of really deep existential opposition, which is this deep rise in reinvestment in, in democratic power. And I don't mean democratic in like the facile way of just like voting or you know electoral politics, but a real commitment to forms of equality that are in kind of mutuality across differences, you know, equality in terms of race and gender and thinking about the uprisings this summer as the largest protests in US history, right? Where people are protesting for Black Lives Matter, protesting against police violence, protesting for abolition and seeing that that's a kind of multiracial, multi-generational coalition of people all across the United States, right? In, in every state over a thousand different protests thinking about the rise of the democratic socialist project, which is also something we can talk about, but a kind of almost intersectional alliance of people who are becoming more invested in politics as the, as the serious sharing of power and is fighting for that to happen, even when there are still deep conflicts within that space. Um, but I see that as both something that I think is hopeful, but also is leading to this really oppositional moment. You know, right now in Washington, D.C., they've been flying airplanes over our airspace um, for the last week because they're testing the natural levels of radiation in our day-to-day -day basis because they are worried that there's, there could be some kind of nuclear attack or dirty bomb that will happen in Washington, D.C. in the inauguration. And the worry, from what I understand, is not of some kind of nebulous terrorist from abroad, but because of white terrorists from within. And so when we see things like that and we think about the kinds of violence that are rising to this moment and the potentiality for it, um, you know, civil war seems to me to be the right way to begin talking about it. Thank you. Uh, Shil, do you want to pick up on some of these themes and run with uh, others, whatever you want, also in a more wider global context, uh, if you want to do that? Michelle, you need to unmute yourself. I, um, I very much liked the piece, uh, David, you, you wrote uh, for Critical Times, the title of which is, is precisely uh, Civil War. Um, I'm sure that you, you wrote it knowing very well uh, the extent to which um, the fact of civil war or the event of civil war uh, has been and is still to a large extent um, a kind of dark shadow of uh, both ancient politics and of contemporary politics. Um, The term itself, it seems to me, is is uh, is polemical. If 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 
you allow me to play with uh, uh, such words. It, it is polemical uh, in the uh, exact sense which craft is, is polemical in, in, in some, some societies. Uh, so I, I, would, I would put forward, first of all, the, the idea that civil war is like witchcraft. Um, in, the, in, in, in terms of what, what it reveals and in terms of what uh, it forecloses. And uh, if I, I followed uh, Elizabeth, Brad and Adam uh, carefully, it seems to me that they, they were somewhat trying precisely to, to, to highlight uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, multiple ambiguities uh, that, are, uh, that the, the term uh, carries. Um, but since you ask us to say something about the term as a potential analytic, let me just say two, uh, two or three things briefly. And here I would like to refer to the work of a French historian called Nicole Leroux, who uh, um, studied uh, the fact of civil war, especially in ancient Greece, where uh, uh, the term had a very specific meaning um, in a framework, political imaginative framework uh, which itself was very much nourished by the myth of uh, orthoctony, uh, the idea that uh, the idea of uh, a, a general kinship linking together all, all citizens. I mention this because it's absolutely central to the uh, idea of civil war. Uh, simply put, civil war is a war in the family. It is um, a war at home, if, if you want. Um, and this matters a lot, I mean, for um, political or superpowers which are used to conduct wars abroad. Uh, when war comes back home, uh, whether it comes back entirely as uh, it was operating from outside or whether it is engineered from within, then uh, we can talk of uh, a civil war. Uh, it's a war at home. Um, it, it is a cruel tragedy uh, for a number of reasons, uh, starting with the fact that it's a, a battle that confronts uh, kinsmen and women with their own kinsmen and, and women. Um, it is a strife uh, that is no longer prevented from the fact of being from the same stock. This concept of the same stock or the same blood, I think it's absolutely crucial for any, uh, uh, let's say, uh, re-enchantment of the term civil war in, in our times. Let me add, uh, just to add to the, uh, the ambiguities of the term, that uh, in ancient Greece too, uh, the term refers to a double movement. One, the potential abolition 
of the political, if we define the political as a, a mode of sublimation of violence, as opposed to the political as the shedding of blood, uh, ancient Greeks really make that distinction absolutely clear. Uh, the political can lead to the shedding of blood, but it's not its primary definition. Its primary definition is precisely to be a modality of negotiation, negotiating antagonisms with the aim of avoiding bloodshed, especially bloodshed among those of the same stock. Um, but, and I'll end there, civil war in ancient Greece is also the kind of war led by people who know that one day they will be reconciled. So the, the prospect of reconciliation is always underpinning civil war. If it disappears, it's no longer a civil war. It's a different kind of war. The possibility of reconciliation has to be there for a civil war to be a really a true, uh, authentic civil war. Short of that uh, prospect of reconciliation, we are dealing with uh, something entirely uh, different. Thank you all for those uh, provocations. I wonder if we can't sort of see uh, a number of elements and sort of uh, people should, Pagna uh, should feel free to weigh in um, sort of in, in relation to uh, any of these themes. On, on the one hand, you know, as, um, as a shield has pointed out, um, uh, the civility in civil war speaks to a certain boundedness, conceptually, um, a boundedness that perhaps has been lost in the contemporary sort of uptake uh, of, of the notion. I mean, there's a sense in which um, uh, very often uh, the reconciliation is predicated on the possibility of an outsider, perhaps a third party that, um, that Brad mentioned, um, who, who has both manipulated but also positioned him or themselves in, in, um, in a space of being able to negotiate the mediation sort of between the, um, the, the, the parties uh, in antagonism with each other. Um, so there's a way in which one slips into, and all of you sort of uh, spoken ways that speak to this, um, there's a slipping into and out of civil war. I mean, it's almost, uh, you know, and that, and that question um, uh, that you raised sort of, you know, the, the when of civil war, when, when does civil war start and when does it end? And does it ever start and ever end? And is the political in general some version, I mean, even if reconciliation is at the very center of it, um, but, you know, perhaps all politics sort of has an element of, you know, not just in, maybe in a Foucauldian way, but not just in a Foucauldian way. Um, you know, all, all politics has um, some aspect of, of, of 
civil war in, uh, as part of it. But I, I want to add um, in, in uh, the frame of a question, something that was not picked up on, but um, not in the comments, but, uh, but drawing on uh, what I'll call Libby's term uh, in her own work. Um, is there a kind of melodrama <laughs> to, to civil warring, right? Um, and if there is a melodrama, um, you know, how does it operate? Um, what, um, what is its way of, um, you know, of, of um, becoming fiery and explosive uh, or indeed of diffusing those kinds of tensions that spark and uh, seemingly inadvertently uh, one is in it before one knows one's in it and then it's too late, right? I mean, that kind of modality. So the, the role of the melodramatic, uh, and one sees it in the contemporary polity today. I mean, the, the bidding up uh, without realizing um, the implications of what one is bidding up to, right? Um, and then the question is, you know, is, is there a possibility of pulling back from that? Uh, once the bidding up has has assumed uh, a logic and a fuel of its own, a spark of its own. So, um, uh, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, the racial, of course, plays a role in that melodrama too, right? Um, so one can think of it in those terms as well. <clears throat> Maybe Libby, do you want to begin, given that I've invoked the term used? Sure. You know, I, I actually think to get to your question about melodrama, the melodrama of civil warring, I think, is a really accurate phrase. And one way we can even think about it is warring melodramas, right? So, you know, if, if part of the work of melodrama in a political sense is to turn political conflict into moralized and existential conflicts of good and evil, right? To turn right and wrong or serious political antagonisms, but to turn that into a moralizing space of good and evil, um, where the only way to solve the problem is the, the extermination of villainy or the deep punishment of villainy, um, then it seems to me thinking about it in that way is really helpful. But of course, part of the problem is that those visions are irreconcilable oftentimes because the hero of one melodrama and the victim of one melodrama is the villain in another, right? So if we do think of the present moment, and I think it is helpful to think just within a, a, a US context, right? We have the melodrama on one side where Trump is certainly the kind of figuration of evil, though he's also just catalyzes or at least maybe congeals a whole host of problems that as my colleague Kenan Ferguson said, we're always part of the American space. He just says, you know, he shouts the things that are often said sotto voce, right? But the kinds of white nationalism, the deep heteropatriarchy, the misogyny, um, the kind of, you know, class antagonisms in a, to a certain degree. And yet on the other side, right, for people who are catalyzed by Trump and see him as both the hero and as the victim of politics, which he's often playing, right? The, the enemy is kind of immigrants Antifa, Black Lives Matter, feminists, right? We, um, and, you know, to, 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 to get a melodrama where people would actually be able to reconcile or have some kind of redemption or to solve a problem becomes really difficult in that space because melodrama often doesn't really allow for that kind of, for that merging of narratives, we could say. Um, 
So I think the ramping up is the easier part and the diminishing, the, 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 the moving away from melodrama is harder. Thanks. Thank you. Um, others do, do, does anybody, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I, um, I want to pick up, um, and I guess it's something which I know um, Libby's also mentioned before about um, what I think is also at stake here is incompatible different ideas of freedom and the way in which there's, these are competing. And I'm, I want to connect this maybe to a Chiel's point on the witchcraft. And as a Chiel was speaking, I couldn't help thinking of the work of Walter Benjamin and the importance of the mythical and how the mythical plays this key role in the melodrama. And the, the, the idea of creating this mythical idea of a society, which can be inclusive, but also you know, exclusive as well. And you can incorporate people in order to banish them. You can incorporate people in order to punish them. And that kind of, you know, and I think that the, the brilliant phrase that Achille used, that it's a, it's a cruel tragedy, that there is something of, of a real cruelty to you. But I guess the other question, which I think, which really, I, you know, which really troubles me by this then is that if we talk about reconciliation, and it's a point which you, you raised, David, if we think about the reconciliation process, and I would agree with Achille's reading on this, of a civil war to happen, there has to be that kinship and that idea of reconciliation. But the question then becomes, you know, reconciliation on whose terms or whose truth of the reconciliation do we follow through if we see that a civil war is taking place and a civil war is a battle for the organization of power whose truth are we going to impose on that reconciliation we know of throughout history there's been truth and reconciliations and often the victims maintain themselves in the position of the victim it's just you know everything changes so everything remains the same and therefore i think this is one of the real difficult challenges we face today in terms of contemporary politics where on the one hand, it, it can sometimes feel like the change is happening. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but it can sometimes feel like change is happening, but yet power is already two steps ahead sometimes. And it can just re-articulate the order of the reconciliation to make its own truth happen before us and we can accept the new mythical arrangements. And I think that that's why for me in this moment, not only is it important to be vigilant, but it's also important to be very clear about the dangers of some of the narratives which are certainly being peddled by Trump at the moment because it's at a particular moment in history where things could go terrifyingly wrong very quickly and I think that perhaps is the warning of this mythical politics. I, yeah. I wonder if, um, I mean thinking about the question of de-escalation it might be worth trying to reconstruct how we got to the moment of escalation or how we got to the moment of these highly political conflicts framed as existential conflicts. And, you know, again, I think I find myself very struck by the kind of everyday ways that these, that some forms of antagonism happen. Uh, so for instance, we're in the middle of a whole crisis about voter rolls, right? Who's on the voter rolls when people get to, who gets to vote in the election, how they get to vote in the election. And again, I think thinking about that question in comparative both historical and global terms, that seems to be just a central feature of de democratic competition, right? And electoral politics. Um, so in a very different context in, in neighborhoods in Accra, right? There's similar kinds of conflicts that are predicated on who's indigenous to a particular kind of community, right? And that determines 
who ought to show up on the voter rolls for this particular district. Um, and there's a great book on urban uh, Ghanaian politics by uh, Jeffrey Peller, who talks about the different configurations of this at the very neighborhood level. Um, so one, I think for me, one question is how do those kind of uh, very routine political processes engender forms of antagonism, uh, forms of politicized identity in particular kinds of ways that may, may escalate up to something like civil war or may not, right? Because they're also just very routine features of electoral politics. And I think in some ways, I guess, I think that's also what Du Bois is doing in Black Reconstruction, right? Instead of telling us a story in which the conflicts were always already existential ones. He's trying to show us the kind of mechanisms by which they come to be that uh, by the end of Reconstruction. And I think the way out seems to be to think more about the way we got into it. Michelle, do you want to add anything? Oops. Michelle? What, what is your question? Oh, the, the, I mean, do you want to add anything to the exchange that is taking place over here? Do you want to um, uh, contribute to the question around whether it's melodrama, whether it's um, the, 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 uh, the tensions at the level of the local um, uh, in, in different contextual framings. Uh, do you have anything to? Yes, no, no, I, I think it, I mean, unless I, I, my English is, it's not very, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure, I'm not responsible for what I say in English. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, I think it's a bit more than a melodrama. I think it's really a serious matter. That's why with Brad, we were referring to the idea of tragedy. Um, but um, if you allow me to, to go back to, to uh, the origins of the term, at least in political theory in, in ancient Greece, the thing is that um, however we define a civil war, the fact is that it leads at the end to the spilling of the blood of one's race. That is its scandalous nature. But, and the supposition is that if you spill the blood of another's race, this is not that scandalous. And, and I think that in the world we live in as we speak, this is still the case. This was the, the case uh, Adam, when you refer to Du Bois uh, 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 argument on all of this, it was the case under slavery. It was, of course, the, the case under colonialism. And in fact, one can define modern colonialism as one way in which uh, European powers did outsource the threat of civil war that was uh, they were they were going through they outsourced it outside uh ms Cesar and the others then making the case that you cannot outsource civil war outside without it at some point coming back to haunt you right at home 
so so that that is not a melodrama it it is a real uh, tragedy um now um the tragedy is still still uh, continuing um when the war at home is is not necessarily a war between those of the same stock when home is in fact made of fundamentally people who are of multiple stocks um and uh, people who belong to the same political body community but are not necessarily necessarily related uh, between them by uh, ties of kinship except fictitious ties of kinship which of course uh, define what citizenship is all about so that's one point the other point david is that we live in a moment when neoliberalism however we want to define it has in fact declared a war a war on the state um war of its own and that's what it's all about really um the task of the government being to fight against itself i mean that under neoliberal structure the role of the state is to fight itself in order for it to to de, to to uh, deperir lenin's uh, term to to perish uh, if if you want but if we I mean we look at part of what is going on in probably in the us partly but elsewhere also I mean, the state is fighting a war against its own its own people we could reread in an entirely different way today foucault's term society must be defended why must it i mean must be defended or it must defend itself uh, which is not exactly the same thing uh when we say society must defend itself and when we say society must be defended by whom uh it must defend itself how uh, and why precisely because it is under siege by uh, uh or in embroiled in in a war in which the state is is an active uh, force but above all of that i will end there. it seems to me that part of what really characterizes the now whether in the us or in other parts of the world is the uh, the kind of metaphysics of our times metaphysics which give a prominent place to the idea of an imminent apocalyptic danger um the feeling uh, being that we we are on the brink of annihilation um that feeling is part of the effect of 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 the times uh so what we are seeing is a kind of political theology which for instance holds that uh, white people are the true lost uh, tribe of of israel and that people of color uh, jewish people are, are descended from satan but that white people are in in charge of clearing the world of non-white people before the return of christ this is not at all a marginal belief or a small small myth to use brad's term 
It's one of the big myths of our times. And it seems to me that that's the direction we have to go if we want to make sense of, let's see, uh, the myriad forms civil war is taking uh, whether in the US or in other parts of, of the world today. You raise a really interesting question about uh, neoliberalism in the way you've sort of formulated it. Um, it's an attack, not, on, not so much on the state as such, even though it, it often formulates it, uh, itself as such, but an attack on a certain form of the state, on the state as the site of the commons, uh, of the kind of uh, general commitment to the well-being of all and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, and in, in doing so, um, the implication of your insight seems to be that um, civil war is an outcome of the declaration of neoliberalization, uh, not just within a particular state, but as a global project. I mean, there's a sense in which what one can, and this is uh, an open question to everybody, um, you know, insofar as neoliberalization sees itself succeeding, it sees the necessity of its success as a kind of international revolution, right? Uh, as the transformation of everywhere in the name of, uh, uh, of the project that comes from particular sites. So there's a, there's a kind of colonizing reach as well, uh, you could say. And so the, the set of questions, perhaps we can uh, pose this as a set of questions before we open up um, to, the, to others, to, the, um, um, to those listening in. Um, the, the set of questions is, is whether we think of the moment we're in, you know, um, in an obvious way as the inheritance of the, you know, certainly the post 1970s neoliberalization that, um, that definitely is a global project. Um, and, uh, and how in thinking of it in those terms, uh, it takes on the kind of uh, racial configurations, uh, the extension of the racial configurations of earlier moments, uh, perhaps as a, as, a, as a kind of resistance to uh, the logics that came out of the uh, anti-colonial and post-colonial movements on the one hand, uh, and assumes a certain set of gendered configurations uh, a, a, alongside of it. So sort of to complexify uh, the, the moment of the, you know, the contemporary revolution, um, uh, the effect of which we've inherited from the last 30 or 40 years, right? Um, so uh, others who, who want to sort of enter into the space of, yeah, Brad. Yeah, David, I, um, I think what, the way you just presented that is really important in terms of understanding the broad sweep of neoliberal history, because then we have an understanding that, you know, Trump didn't just fall from the skies, right? Actually, and I think actually Donald Trump is an accelerationist. He really accelerates a lot of existing dynamics, which are already in play for many, many years. Now, the point which I really like, which Achille um, made and really connects, I think, to Adam's point about the everyday antagonisms, actually, is... This idea of, you know, the war on the state, um, can we even use the term society anymore, right? The Foucault talks about society must be the, 
you know, defended. You know, in the UK, we had Margaret Thatcher, right, who says there's no such thing as society, right? And, and I'm wondering to what extent, actually, as a dominant motif for power, has society actually been replaced by the home? Because the home itself becomes, you know, I know there's a, a beautiful poem by Wasan Shire who talks about the meaning of home, but home itself now becomes almost like this site of intimate politics, that we can only trust the atomization of the home. In the United States, the big fight over the homeland, what does the homeland really mean to, you know, to expel people who don't belong to the home? And I think that intimacy of politics, of course, we know through Wilhelm Reich, that's where fascism really thrives in this microphysics of power, in, in this idea of the homeliness. And then, you know, your point then, David, about then, well, where does this leave us in terms of the contemporary reach of colonization. Well, in this age, in the pandemic, it's where we all are sat now, it's at home. <laughs> so the colonial is reaching into the house, the fascism is reaching into the house. And because the home perhaps has displaced the society as a way of rethinking the order of power. And that's where then Adam's point about the everyday antagonisms becomes so crucial as an analytic for this power especially the digital antagonisms as well in the age of this neoliberal accelerationism. And I think that's perhaps the point to remember with COVID as well. While some things have really slowed down to a standstill, other measures of power have been accelerating beyond all conceivable measure. And to, to make sense of that, I think is also important as part of this civil war narrative. Libby. Great. Thanks. Um, I'm also glad that we brought up neoliberalism. And I think both of Ashiel's points on the one hand that neoliberalism is a war on the state, though, as I think David also said, right, also a war on the public or, or what is a public and who gets to even be in it? Is it a value? As well as the kind of what we're, the global movement of white people in charge of cleaning the world. And I wonder if we can see this movement, the kind of deep rise of eth white ethno-nationalisms around the globe as in part a response to neoliberal attempts to reshape, eviscerate aspects of a state and certainly to eviscerate a public. Because it seems to me there's a sense in which, right, part of the work of neoliberalism is the way in which people, the kind of lack of loss of political participation or loss of even venues for a political, loss of a political that is even, you know, worth striving for or worth having. And I think there's a way in which this rise of ethno-nationalism is actually pushing back against that in particular ways. Right, it's a it's a, re a reclamation of state power or of a claim that that you know that kind of white nationalists are able to organize and 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 control state power, in particular and in violent ways. So it's um right a reclamation even of a public in a particular way. When we think of things like Trump rallies, right, or or you know marching of skinheads you know across Europe right now, right, that is a reclamation of public space in an incredibly violent and exclusionary way. So I think there's a way in which some of this movement is actually a response to neoliberalism. And maybe if we go back to Brad's point about there being a third term, you know, maybe neoliberalism here is part of that third term of civil war when we think of where are the benefits accruing globally, who is going to remain unscathed if there is bloodshed on the streets, right? Who is siphoning money and in fact profitizing off of forms of bloodshed that we see, you know, incipient forms right now. So just a few thoughts on that. I guess I would just, um, I mean, add or extend uh, Libby's point and 
I think the the demographic imaginary or imagination of this moment is really striking. I mean, the constant fixation on numbers, right? How and the declining numbers, possibly or de declining majorities of uh, of uh, of white majorities in the U.S. and and more generally, just the, there's a kind of fixation on the demographic that I think seems really important and again seems very driven around or connected to the kinds of uh, mobilizations I, I was describing on a, on a lower scale. I think, I, again, I'm, I'm sorry to keep returning to the Du Bois, but I think there's a way that those mobilizations in our contemporary moment of the demographic want us to imagine and want to make demography translate into politics, right? To, to make that transition seamless. But again, I think going back to that moment of the 19th century civil war and its afterlives in the US, we see all these ways in which actually that was a really open question about whether demographic politics would map onto um, actual political positions. Um, and I think, you know, this goes back in some ways to Brad's third or third vector possibly is, I mean, the point that Stephanie McCurry makes about the Confederacy is that Confederate leaders never imagine or think about all the people in their own, on their side, who might not actually be on their side or who might be ambivalent vis-a-vis -vis their side, right? They never think about what slaves are gonna do once the war starts. And this becomes, of course, very important in how the war plays out. And they never think about women and women's politicization during the war and the ways in which women would become a profound internal challenge to, to the uh, Confederacy. So there's this kind of conception or imagination of building a unitary popular will um, by the Confederacy or in the contemporary moment by a white supremacist or white nationalists. And the internal frictures and fractures of that, I think, are just are important to think with and to not buy their ideological story that, in fact, a unitary popular will has been constituted. Okay, can I just push you for a moment, um, sort of on the on on a broadening of the demographic uh, question. I mean, in, in contrast with the 19th century uh, civil war, um, demography today has a, I mean, both a more mobile um, sort of reach, you know, populations are moving more readily uh, as a result of globalization and all the forces that we know uh, were attendant to it. Um, you know, coming again out of the, uh, 50s and 60s and, and, and the response to it and so on. Uh, and, um, uh, and the kind of anti-immigration politics that started really, I mean, you know, they were always kind of riffing there, but in the 1980s began to be ramped up, uh, uh, not just in the United States, but in Europe, uh, no, no less, right? Um, and, you know, has taken on a dynamic and almost uh, Every place that you can, you can point to in in, in the sense, so that the the way in which the demographic sort of factors into the sense uh, to to both the fear of reconfiguration as a result of of this mobility, um, uh, and into an actual reconfiguration again as a kind of response to the mobility, 
right? Uh, sort of get set in place. And, and there's an element of, um, of con you know, if not civil war in a conventional sense, a kind of um, warring antagonistic set of uh, politics that emerge out of that set of configurations, um, almost as a mark of our moment, right? Um, yeah. Well, this just reminds me of that, um, the book from maybe last year, The Scramble for Europe, which is a whole story about ex huge, you know, growth of populations in Africa, a young population scrambling for Europe. And of course, you know, it's a reference back to the scramble for Africa, but one that even, even though the author says this isn't his intention, very much frames it as a kind of impending race war. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's absolutely right that um, I, I don't mean to draw the connect or the analogy to the 19th century so closely, but um, yeah. Sure, were you about to say something or? Um... I don't know, I was just agreeing with uh, Adam. Uh, the author of the book is Stephen Smith. Uh, so we're going to move to some questions uh, from our audience uh, still with us. Um, I'm going to start with a question that comes out of uh, Ashil's initial reflection on reconciliation. Uh, but the question is posed to all, and it's uh, slightly long. It seems to me mistaken, says the questioner, to say that a civil war requires an anticipation of reconciliation, and that this anticipation of reconciliation differentiates civil war from war. Uh, yes, there's a view that politics is war by other means, in which case even war anticipates reconciliation, including even the extermination of one's enemies. Note the cynicism in this view. If we mark in advance that a civil war already anticipates reconciliation, we then risk underestimating violence and overestimating our ability to control or contain it. War cannot know its end in advance. Um, so some of you have reflected on the, uh, on the openness of, of that set of questions. Maneuvers maybe, but war no. Violence can't know where it stops. Isn't this what Antigone teaches us that kinship tragically and perhaps melodramatically is no barrier. In this sense, we can only name a civil war as such when it is over. And so back to one of the mysteries, when, uh, when is a civil war and when, it, when does it end? So Ashil, do you want to sort of start with some reflection on that and then others can jump in? Uh, I, I, uh, I take all of that on board, of course. Um, I was speaking, uh, as I said, uh, drawing um, uh, from the work of uh, Nicole Loro, uh, who, uh, uh, whose um, uh, views on uh, the concept of uh, the two concepts of stasis and polemos uh, in ancient Greece uh, are quite uh, authoritative to the point where uh, political theories of the civil war since her work have uh, felt uh, obliged to, uh, to contend with, with what she says. A uh, case, for instance, of uh, the lectures by Agamben uh, published under the, the title Stasis uh, a few years ago. Uh, the fact, a uh, historical fact, is that uh, um, the, uh, the 
in, in ancient Greece, civil war is among other things, the kind of war which is led uh, by uh, people who are not only related among themselves by ties of blood, but uh, uh, who are not only of the same stock, and uh, use that term uh, deliberately, but these are also people who um, know that uh, one day they will be reconciled. That hatred will change into reconciliation. Uh, in that sense, a civil war is a war at the end of which a festival of reconciliation is possible. Doesn't mean that it will always happen, but that possibility is fundamentally inscribed in the strictures uh, of the uh, uh, of a civil war. Um, so, why is it that I was uh, uh, referring to to this? Because um, I wanted to bring us to think about the qualities of those wars which are led against those who are not of the same stock, but who nevertheless happen to inhabit the same, if you want, body political community. Uh, I think, for instance, I mean, uh, of uh, African-Americans in, in, in America. Um, but, but beyond that, uh, David, uh, it seems to me, I mean, one of the many uh, key issues you are inviting us to think about has to do, for instance, how do we share the earth if we are not uh, defined by uh, a common birth or if we don't belong to the same stock, a stock in the sense of, I mean, whatever, race, but stock also in the, the economic sense, uh, the capitalist economic financial sense. So I insist on this concept of a stock. How do we share the earth if indeed we do, we're not defined by, by, it seems to me that is part of what uh, explains a lot of the uh, accelerationist politics uh, we, we, we see today, white uh, <clears throat> supremacy being, being one of them. Yeah, I, I do wonder, I mean, and this is to sort of sense a little bit of tension between the show and Brad, uh, given Brad's early sort of reflection, his opening reflection on the way in which uh, whatever, he, he didn't call it reconciliation um, because he only used the term afterwards, the show, but, you know, in, 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 the, in the logics of reconciliation, in the politics of reconciliation, the kind of repositioning of the dispositioned, right? In, in their disposition space again and again and again, right? Um, so that even while there's a reconciliation, there's, a, there's a, um, an extended disinheritance or an extended um, disavowal of their position, at least in part, uh, which, which continues the conditions of resentment and resentment that, that get extended and, and assume a new kind of politics, but still a politics that carries a, some of the resentment along with it. 
I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Brad. But no, 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 but I recognize that. And there's something, something of attention in TRC, right? It's a very right? important point Brad, yeah. Brad raised. Uh, maybe I'm speaking too much from the South African experience, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is, I mean, reconciliation, yes. Uh, uh, um, but we know very well that uh, uh, it has uh, many limits. But what is interesting in that uh, um, um, possibility is, is that uh, uh, irreconciliability uh, is, is dealt with, let's say, uh, the very possibility of reparation uh, uh, acts as a, a horizon of openness, um, which, which does not preclude, I mean, antagonisms and uh, and fights and struggles, but at least uh, the uh, the belief that things are open, um, uh, that they can be negotiated, that the political is a matter of constant, permanent negotiation, uh, in which nothing is ever uh, uh, won once for all. Uh, everything can always be. Uh, uh, the object of uh, a revision, uh, but under conditions short of a generalized peeling of blood, I think that's something we have to look into. Brad, you want to add anything? Yeah, I am. Um, I think uh, Chiel's more optimistic slant is far better story to go with. I think on this occasion, <laughs> I think. Um, I, I guess I'm kind of I'm, I'm struggling with. I guess this. Um, I want to think about this in the context of then the relationship in civil war between the self and the other and the way Achille maps it out. And I think if we understand civil war, particularly through you know, the early um, important Greek model, which Achille points out, and then civil war in the context of colonization and the civil war through that paradigm, there was still an, a necessity for, for the other, whether the other was to be exploited productively and that continued need for the necessity for the other. And even if we think of the, you know, some of the most brutal, terrifying civil wars through Latin America in the 60s, 70s, 1980s, there was never the outright obliteration of the other. There was always the need for the other in, in one way or, an, or another, right? So, um, and I think perhaps, you know, what, what we're talking about, what is the, as Achille was think, uh, speaking, I guess I was thinking about, well, what's the alternative word for reconciliation? Well, it's obliteration or perhaps it's annihilation. Maybe we can talk about the annihilate, the full annihilation of the other. Now, perhaps one of the most difficult questions I think we all perhaps face right now, and certainly Elizabeth and Adam will be better placed to answer this in the context of, of the United States and certainly you as well, David, is to what extent does society any longer need the other? Right? Do we need the other anymore in this context? Um, and I think what, what perhaps surprises us all, particularly in this age of new media technologies, is we're encountering problems we all thought had been resigned to the historical dustbin, but they're back again. And actually, this idea that the more we know about the world, the less violent we become just simply doesn't match the reality in which we're living in. And actually, it seems to be all the more possible to kill people violently with all the video cameras in the world upon them. And I think, you know, or for, you know, in this age of mass surveillance for bodies to disappear in the thousands and tens of thousands. So I think this is the contradiction of our times and actually maybe perhaps what this is makes this this moment perhaps even more pessimistic for me is actually maybe we no longer need the other 
in that context of civil war, such that the types of reconciliation, which I really hope Achille is right on this, that there is a possibility of, of you know, the open of politics. But perhaps when I look at the political landscape today, I'm struggling to find where those openings are where it is the openness, you know, because it seems the politics is becoming so entrenched, it looks more theological than anything else. And I think that's, you know, but I, I, I would rather, you know, stick with the Cheagle's optimism on this and maybe not be so pessimistic. So. Um, I, I'm going to, um, uh, there's, there's not all that much time left. And uh, although there are lots of questions we won't get to, sorry, everybody. Uh, we'll provide them to the panelists and if they feel they want to follow up after the fact, uh, they can. But I want to end with two questions that extends this, this tension that uh, that is not just a tension between Brad and Michelle, but a tension in the very conditions of possibility of the political. Um, and the, the one is, um, uh, you know, whether climate change and maybe digitality as well um, sort of factor into the, the kind of pessimism uh, that we're seeing prolific, uh, not just in the landscape in certain registers in the US, but, but a kind of, you know, what a show in other work is called liberal pessimism. Um, a, a kind of pessimism uh, that pervades that um, that climate change um, kind of uh, extends uh, and, and ramifies uh, uh, in a certain way as a kind of apoc apocalyptic event, uh, also playing into neoliberalism as, as a third term. That's uh, the language of Catherine Andrews asking that question. And then Wendy Brown, uh, and uh, maybe this will carry us through, although if it doesn't, um, you pose a couple of other questions. Uh, Wendy asked, does, and, and this is the sort of flip side of that, the, the kind of, the, whether there's a closing down in the wake of all this uh, pessimism of a kind of aspirational futurity. So you, I'll read Wendy's question out loud. Does the recognition of past commonality or eventual reconciliation that Elizabeth and Achille identify as civil war's defining characteristics perhaps give way in an era of A, endless wars, and B, nihilism that detaches participants from identification with the past of investment in a future, right? So the, the, I mean, the, the question of futurity um, of what I've elsewhere called futureless futures sort of becomes, I think, quite pressing. Right? <clears throat> so um, maybe Libby, we can start with you and Adam and uh, at this time, we'll go to Ashil uh, and Brad. Libby? I'd be happy to think about that. Um, I mean, especially the, what is a future? Is there a future? Um, and there's so much important work about the ways in which vibrant visions for futures have been shut down, whether those are about, you know, um, decolonized futures in the wake of the end of colonialism, whether it's the kind of end of a, you know, a kind of American dream in a liberal democratic space or even the end of a really vibrant left um, in a global way. And it's that last one that I actually feel might be shifting, that maybe there is a way in which people are moving past, you know, what Lauren Berlant has called the kind of impasses of, a, of the present where dreams for the past no longer seem to provide visions for the future um, 
but we're not yet sure where they go. And there does seem to me, you know, I'm not normally the person who's in the position of feeling optimistic about the world, but, you know, in these, in the visions that we're seeing of a future, especially with younger people, especially when I think of the millions and millions of people who are out on the streets these days for multitude of different causes that are actually pushing them more left than they might have been when they were, before they walked onto that street quite literally. And there seems to me to be a huge anger and a pushback against neoliberalism, against white supremacy, against the, you know, the kind of just rampant misogyny that structures our world. Um, and, and actually not just against things, but a kind of incipient recognitions that there are things to be for. And whether or not it's a necessarily galvanizing clear vision of the future, I think there are ways in which people are beginning to articulate what does a world look like when people actually have equal power and that people are putting their bodies on the line and in the streets and where we will, you know, who knows for starting to think about those visions. So I actually think we might be past a kind of, not past, but maybe I should say there are moments of visions for a future that are not wholly about the apocalyptic climate. You know, when I think about someone like Naomi Klein and even the enormous movement of the Sunrise Movement and the Green New Deal, where people realize that in order to actually fight for climate futures, we don't need to invent things and we don't need to make newness. We literally just have to have the political will to like decarbonize and to, you know, and, and change our, you know, electrical you know, um, processes and things like that. And I feel like we're seeing an incipient moment where this political will is starting to happen at a translocal and a transnational way. So, um, you know, whether or not that springs civil war against people who are arguing very distinctly against those visions is another question. But I, I'm seeing, so, you know, visions of a future that is kind of on the cusp of being limbed more clearly. Jim, do you wanna? Sure, I mean, um, I guess I, I wanna kind of think with the South Africa example a little more. And I think what's really instructive about the South Africa example is that the moment of reconciliation isn't res restored. It's not a restorative vision. It's not a return to a prior moment of, of unity or something like that. It's the generation of a new conception of oneself as a citizen of South, of the, of South Africa. And it's also, of course, a partial one, a at the time felt necessarily partial one that tried to think about the political dimensions. And certainly, of course, now is has left open the question of the social and economic dimensions of what that reconciliation will look like. So for me, that I th that is, I think, a, a really important example to think with because, again, it's not one that imagines that what we're doing is in the process of recovering something, but generating something new. And um, the questions for me that is, what what kinds of I mean, what for the what forms of political movement made it possible for that moment of, even if it's a partial moment, moment of reconciliation to happen. And the, the kind of broad-based social movement organization, anti-apartheid movement that made that possible, I think is a really important lesson for our own moment. Um, and I wanna tie this to the, a question that we might not get to, but Nasser Mufti asked about uh, the question of, of 
civil war had once been the thing that we associate with the periphery, with the post-colonial world, with uh, not here, right, but elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what do we make of the arrival of the concept into the contemporary into the contemporary U.S. space? And I think, in some, I mean, I guess I, what I would say about that is, I think this should be an occasion for us to rethink what we thought were the sources of civil war. Um, so, as coming out of the field of political science, which pioneered studying civil wars all over the world. Um, you know, I think so many of those studies always want to situate the sources in, in, uh, in things like nationalism, ethnic identity. Um, and I think the or this moment and the ways in which civil war has appeared in our own, con in our own context might let lead us to think that about more general or generalizable uh, dimensions of modern politics that, that produce these forms of enmity. So, I think that's for me why I've, I've talked a lot about democratic politics in this, in this uh, event and electoral politics in particular um, as one way of thinking about you know, processes that are shared actually across different spaces across the post-colonial world and the North Atlantic. And that also again, thinking from my field as a political theorist that this might be a way also to kind of have a denormativized or non-idealized way of thinking about democratic politics, thinking really about its internal contradictions and limits, um, as well as its, you know, as well as the ways it gets captured by external forces. So, and I think the South Africa example and thinking just generally with post-colonial examples of the same kinds of dynamics and the ways potentially they offer different kinds of resources for resolving them might be again a way of thinking about um, models, models beyond the ones that uh, appear to us in the United States. Great, thanks so much, Brett. Do you want? Yeah, I, um, I just I guess a couple of points, just in terms of um, the first question about uh, the normalized or the, or the ecological. I think one thing that's become very clear to us, particularly the last decade, is that you know we're becoming acutely aware of the ecologies of suffering which we're kind of all being immersed in. And perhaps the one thing which Trump has made so apparent actually is the importance of atmosphere to our understanding of politics and particularly the atmosphere of violence. So understanding those ecologies and those ecological terms and taking them much more seriously. I think Wendy Brown's uh, question is really important obviously not the time to answer it you know but I think the um and certainly perhaps the, the opportunity for another conversation on what does nihilism look like today how do we conceptualize nihilism how do we think of nihilism in this contemporary moment and I'd maybe just end on a, on a point which um which came through in a conversation I recently had with James Martel when James talks about fascism and the very real presence of fascism in the world today and whether we can talk about American fascism, but certainly James is, and if there's anything to be optimistic from what I take from James's reading, where he says that fascism is inherently vulnerable. So we often think of fascism as defined by its strength, but fascism is actually defined by its vulnerability. And maybe to have a better understanding of nihilism as a form of vulnerability allows us perhaps to have a better grasp and a better optimism for the future, if there's some to be had soon. Thank you. Interesting. Sure. The, the ecological question, uh, we, we didn't go there as much as we should have, but it's absolutely uh, uh, crucial. I mean, yesterday um, <clears throat> uh, we were um, preoccupied mostly 
with uh, the questions of how life emerges more and more, uh, many are preoccupied with the question of how it ends and under what conditions. Uh, so this question of futures of life and the futures of the earth, I think uh, are crucial to uh, a new understanding of both war and, and, uh, and the natures of, of, of civil, civil strife in general. But I would like to just make a few brief comments on, on Wendy's question because it is, it is a, a very important one. <clears throat> I mean, we tend to, to forget that the, um, the so-called triumph of, uh, of liberal democracy uh, was underwritten to a large extent by highly destructive technologies. Uh, I would uh, uh, argue that the, uh, the same highly destructive technologies are fast, uh, to use Wendy's term, hollowing this same liberal democracy out. Um, such technologies basically <clears throat> uh, threaten, uh, at least uh, from uh, my point of view, the, the possibility of, of any human continuity uh, at all. Uh, and when they are coupled with uh, uh, fi financial or digital uh, capitalism, uh, what they do is that they erect uh, uncertainty uh, into the, uh, the ultimate resource as well as the ultimate existential uh, risk or, or threat. Um, um, so far so that we, we are reduced nowadays to, to calculating uh, probabilities, um, the anticipation of uh, possible futures, um, of course, has become an intrinsic uh, part of the management of time, but time understood as, as basically random, randomness, uh, randomness itself uh, understood as a mode of, uh, uh, mode of uh, order, uh, um, broader cultural preoccupation being uh, with chance and, and, and contingency. So, uh, uh, so it, it seems to me that with this uh, way of manipula manipulation of time, um, the future uh, is drawn into the present instead of uh, the present being projected into, into the future. Uh, and, and, and this, I think, is at the heart of uh, uh, deeper metaphysical tendencies of our times uh, of which, uh, uh, which she, she, uh, she referred to as uh, including uh, forms of, of nihilism. Um, but we could, we could find a, another term, term for that. Um, I think survivalism and separatism uh, characterize a lot, of, a lot of what is going on, uh, since that we, uh, we, we hardly believe nowadays that we need the other. Um, the question is, what do we do with those uh, we do not need, we think we do not need, who do not count? How, how do we rule them? Uh, what, what do we do with them? Where do we, uh, what portion of the earth is it that we'll assign, assign to them? Or, or do we need to get rid of them? How will we do that uh, with what forms of justification? 
Thank you. And this um, closing set of notes, uh, this has been a really, uh, I think everybody will agree. Um, I want to thank everybody for staying with us. Uh, this has been a really insightful and provocative, provoking, searching um, set of reflections on the politics of our time in relation to um, the historical, but especially focused on the politics of our moment as we've concluded. Uh, we will be um, posting this with a set of resources to our uh, UCHRI events page. Um, we very much appreciate um, uh, all the contributions, both the questions from the audience and especially to um, Adon Gitashu, Elizabeth Anker, Brad Evans, and Ashion Bembe for a really memorable conversation. Thanks so very much. Been terrific. And we'll see you all soon. Stay well, everybody. Thank you. And safe.